We're in Acts, and uh, I was actually thinking this week, I thought, you know, it's interesting, there are some uh, pastors who I know, and I, I'm not, you know, critiquing this at all, but there are some pastors I know that, well, many times, they will decide as they're going through, oh, what am I going to talk about? And as you guys know, I don't do that, I, we're working through a passage of Scripture, and we're in the book of Acts. And uh, it's interesting because uh, sometimes I don't know, unless I'm looking a few weeks ahead, I don't always know exactly what it is I'm going to be talking about as I get into it, but uh, I'm always excited as I start to dig into a passage going, oh wow, that's good. There's some good stuff there. And uh, I actually was reading, uh, you guys are all reading, you're doing your Bible reading during the week, right? Um, I'm doing this with you and I read in Matthew 13.52, Jesus is telling a bunch of stories to his disciples bunch of parables. After he gets done, he says this. He says, have you understood all these things? And they say, yeah. And he says this, and I, I don't know why, no matter how many times I read the Bible, I still get to verses I go, I've never, I don't recognize that. I don't think I've ever read that. I know I've read it, but I don't remember this. And I came to one this last week, and it says, and it says, and he said to them, after he says, have you understood all these things? He says, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out his treasure, what is new, and what is old. And it hit me as I was going through this week, I thought, that is exactly what I do. As, you know, as I hear, as I study, as I bring things, and I'm, I'm trained in the kingdom of heaven, kind of like the disciples, I'm, I'm learning these things. It's kind of like a master of a house who comes out and says, he just starts throwing out some treasures. That's what I feel like I do on Sunday. I, I go through the week, and I'm, I'm digging in the Bible, and then when I come to church on Sunday, I'm like, hey, look what I found, everybody. That's kind of what it feels like I'm doing. Um, and so that's exactly, I don't know, I just, that, that passage hit me this last week, and I thought, man, that is, that is what it feels like when I get up here. So I'm getting ready to toss some treasures out there to you. You ready? You ready to catch? Well, uh, listen back over the last few weeks, we've been in Acts. Peter and John, they're on their way to the temple. It's evening. They're on their way to pray. As they're walking in at the gate, there's a man sitting there who's been lame from birth, right, his whole life. So, so he, uh, that he makes eye contact with this man. The Bible says he looks right at him. It looks intently at him. He tells the guy, he says, look at me. And the guy looks up at him, and he's thinking he's going to get a, a gift, right? And, and Peter and John, they, I, silver and gold have I none. But what we have, we give you. And so he reaches out his hand, and he says, rise up in the name of Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And we find out later this guy is 40 years old, around over 40 years old, gets up, and as anybody who's been lame their entire life that can suddenly walk, goes off through the temple, leaping and praising God. This obviously draws a crowd. I mean, it's the time of prayer anyway, so there would have been a lot of people in the temple. This draws a crowd because this guy, we find out as well a little bit later, that he, everybody knew him. Everybody had seen this guy a hundred times. I mean, 40 years. You know, potentially, he's been sitting at the same gate in the same spot begging. And so, hey, we're, you know, what happened? We don't know his name. You know, what happened to so-and-so? I don't know. And then they see him running around praising God. What's going on? And so what do they do? They gather together, and Peter and John, they quickly, very quickly say, I don't want anybody to think this has anything to do with us. That's what they say, basically. This is through Jesus of Nazareth, the same Jesus who not that long ago was crucified. And they, all these people would have known it. They would have been part of that crowd that was chanting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And so Peter and John say, that same Jesus that you crucified has done this. And we find out that many of these people, they hear it and believe, they repent. They, what have we done? But they find out Jesus is alive and he's performed this miracle through Peter and John. Now the, the Sadducees, 
were leaders of the temple. They come by and they see all this going on. They see the uproar. They're kind of the ones that have the power. Okay. Sadducees, by the way, don't believe in the miraculous. Um, Sadducees, we think, have even gone through parts of the Old Testament and, and gotten rid of those, those places in Scripture that have miracles and say, well, that, that didn't really happen. They don't believe in the resurrection. And here you have these guys saying, Jesus was resurrected from the dead. So the Sadducees quickly gather Peter and John together, and we find out the man that was lame from birth, and they get them together. They hold them overnight in jail, basically. Next day, they question them. They tell them, don't do this anymore. Stop talking in the name of Jesus. Peter and John say, in essence, you decide. Ought we to obey God or you, basically, is what they tell these guys. It says they're threatened even more, and then they leave. So I want to continue this story, Peter and John. So now they've, that we're going to pick up right where they're being released. And so I'm going, to, I'm going to just read through this without any commentary. I'm just going to read through this. It's not very long. Verses 23 through 31. Then I'm going to go back and pick out some little nuggets, right? Little treasures. And uh, so we're going to read through here. So I'm going to pick up at Acts chapter 4, verse 23. It says, uh, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who brought the mouth... Uh, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we dig into this passage of Scripture, I ask that you would, Lord, give me wisdom as I unfold these different little treasures of truth. God, I pray that you would guide my words. I pray that today would be a day, not that we hear from, from us, but Lord, we pray that it would be a day that we get to hear from you. Lord, we know that can't happen without your miraculous intervention, and so I just pray that you would do that today. In your name, amen. All right, so let's go back to verse 23. Verse 23 says, when they were released, okay, they went to, the, to their friends. Now, this word, to their friends, normally this word is translated like family. It's, it's usually uh, like saying, hey, you've, you've headed off to your people. But what people did they go to? They go back to the, their friends, the church, basically. It'd be kind of like if, if I had been arrested at D District 118 for sharing the gospel, right? And you guys all heard about it. As soon as I was released, this would probably be one of the first places I would come. And you guys might, I can just see you guys all coming here and find out what happened. What happened? What happened, Matt? Right? And I'd come. And, I mean, this is exactly what Peter and John do. They show up and they, they, they give an update. This is what happened. Can you just see them all sitting there? What happened? Oh, yeah, this is what happened. Oh, and Peter, you said that. I can't, that's awesome. You know, and they're just so pumped because of this, this event. 
And so they come back and they share this story. They get with their friends. And it says, and when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. Now, now this is interesting. Notice it doesn't say, and Peter said, or John said, it says, they lifted their voices together and said. Now, it's possible that one of them was praying. Like, sometimes if we're all together and, and I might walk out of here and say, hey, we prayed together tonight, I may be referring to me praying, but we're all together. But in this particular case, it really gives this idea that maybe they were all speaking together. And what's interesting about that is that as we read the rest of this prayer, which starts with verse 24 and goes all the way down to verse 30, it's, that's the prayer. The, the grammar, right, the Bible is written in Greek, the grammar of this section is from every commentary read, is kind of atrocious. It's not very good, which is weird because Luke, who's writing this, has great grammar. Great, Luke is a very good writer. And so most people believe that this prayer was probably a prayer that these people had memorized. And Luke, what he's doing right here, he's just quoting the prayer that these people had memorized. And that this is a prayer that they had probably said many times together. Right, So since the time of Christ to this time, there's already this prayer that they've developed that references Jesus and Pontius Pilate, and they've developed this prayer that they prayed together. Interesting idea, isn't it? We don't really do very much of that, do we, where we have a, a written prayer. But that's something that's very, very common historically throughout the, the, the ages of the church, is sometimes the, the people will get together and they'll have a, a prayer that they've written, and they share it, and they pray it together. Uh, kind of like what our uh, responsive reading is. Very much like that. That's exactly what was going on here. Now, so here this prayer starts off. They lift their voice together, and it starts off, and it says, Sovereign Lord. Okay, now, this word is super interesting. The word sovereign. Sovereign Lord is not used very often in the New Testament as a, uh, a way to, to talk to God, but it's, it's used a few times. The Greek word that's translated sovereign, you're going to recognize it. It's, it's an English word as well, as well. Have you ever heard the word despot? despot. It's like a, 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 usually we use it in a negative connotation, right? If we're talking about a, a despot, we're almost talking like an Adolf Hitler kind of guy, somebody that's in supreme control, but he's a real horrible human being. But the word itself just means someone who has absolute control. That's why we translate it sovereign. Sovereign Lord is how they start this off. Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. This is very much like many prayers throughout the Old Testament. There's a prayer in Hezekiah that follows the same pattern. There's one in Isaiah that follows this pattern. There's several prayers uh, going all the way back to Genesis where they start off by just saying, Sovereign Lord, you made everything. A uh, little side note, this morning my mom came in, and you guys know my mom. She's always reading her Bible. Um, she came in, and she, had, she was sharing something, and she loves to do this. She loves to come in and say, I was reading my Bible this week, and she's so... Timid Jews. I was reading my Bible this week, and, and she was sharing with me. She said, <laughs> don't tell her I said that. <laughs> She'll smack me, I'm telling you. Um, uh, she says, read my Bible this week, and, and she, point, she was talking about this prayer. She said, it's amazing how a lot of times in the Old Testament, they start off prayers by talking about how God is the creator. I'm like, that is so interesting, because that's exactly what was in my notes to, to talk about today. Um, here, these early Christians, they have this prayer that they're praying together, and it does. It follows this Old Testament pattern of starting off by saying, Sovereign Lord, you made everything. I think that's a great way to start off praying. That's precisely how they start. I, I would encourage you, if you, if you have trouble knowing when to pray sometimes, start off this way. Lord, you made everything. And sometimes you can just stop and think about that for a minute. 
You literally made, you're the creator of all things. And that's how these early Christians started off. Now, after they talk this way, after they pray this prayer, they go into a psalm. The psalm that they quote, and I have it here, this is uh, Acts uh, 4.25 and uh, 26. Um, this psalm actually comes from Psalm chapter 2. This is the first couple of verses of Psalm chapter 2. They're quoting the psalm. So in this prayer, they start off, Lord, you made everything. Sovereign Lord, you made everything. Lord, we know that you've revealed yourself to us. And then they quote a psalm. And it says this, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? Now, this psalm was originally referring to God's anointed one, the king. So here you have the king, right? Everybody's, everybody's all caught up. What's going on back in the back? <laughs> you guys are so funny. You're, bad, you're as bad as I am. If I can pay attention to me. There's a baby crying. What's going on? <laughs> it's okay. Um, oh, that doesn't sound happy, does it? We need soundproof walls, don't we? Um, all right. Refocus, Matt. Refocus. Come back in. Come back in. I was just as distracted. Um. This psalm was originally talking about the king of Israel and the nations all around Israel. And, and the psalm was saying, why do, the, why do the nations rage all around us? I mean, we're God's people. But this prayer is going to take that psalm and apply it to Christ and said that's exactly what they do. And it's interesting because they, they describe some things here. They talk about why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain. The people were originally referring to all the nations around as well. But when they apply it, they talk about the people of Israel as well, how they've rejected their own Messiah. And that's exactly what it says next in these next two verses. It says, for truly in this city, so see they're now they're interpreting that psalm through this Jesus lens. For truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant whom you anointed, right? There's the anointed one. Um, both Herod, and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined it to take place. Now, there's a wonderful little nugget of truth. Remember I said earlier, I'm throwing out these little nuggets of truth. That, that's, that second verse, verse 28 there, I'm going to highlight it for you. This is a big nugget of big truth. To do whatever your hand and your plan. Notice it doesn't just say whatever your plan had. It's like it's double emphasized. Why did the nations rage? Why, why did all these things? So, so think about with Christ, what happened? God is working out his plan of salvation for people. And his plan involves sending his son, the Messiah, right, to come to this earth, but to die on the cross for our sins. So when Jesus was arrested, now, the ones that were doing the arresting, were they doing a good thing? We know no. Were they sinning? Yes. This guy was innocent. But when Jesus was arrested, guess what? That was God's hand and God's plan. When Herod and Pilate perverted justice to save themselves, I mean, these leaders, they should have realized, and you even see Pilate realizing that, like, wait a minute, he's innocent. They should have stood up for what was right. Did they do that? No. But that was even part of God's hand and God's plan. And Pilate washed his hands of the matter and said, do what you want. When Pilate offered a murderer to be released instead, God's hand and God's plan. When the people shouted against their own Messiah, crucify him, 
Crucify him. Crucify him. Guess what? God's hand and God's plan. When the Roman soldiers scourged him, fulfilling scripture, though they didn't even know it, Isaiah says, by his stripes, we are healed. God's hand and God's plan. When the soldiers mocked him and sold his garments, God's hand, God's plan. When the nails were driven into his hands and his feet, God's hand and God's plan. God's plan of salvation included these Could I call them horrors? God's plan of salvation included his great high priest, his son, Jesus, to know firsthand rejection, suffering, and pain. I always marvel at this because God doesn't do anything evil. Yet all evil ultimately bends the knee to God's good purposes. I'm going to say that again. God's, God doesn't do evil. Does God do evil? No. But evil always bends the knee to God's good purposes. Always. I typed down in my notes, how does he do this? I literally typed in my notes after I typed that. I'll prove it to you if you don't believe me. I typed in there, how does he do this? And I put it underneath of it. I have no idea. I haven't got a clue. I don't get that. The longer I think about it, the less I get it sometimes, I think. Then sometimes I'll think about it for a really long time and I go, this is starting to make sense. Then I go, no, it doesn't. I don't get it. But I, but I know it's true. Over and over and over and over again in Scripture, God is in control. He's the sovereign Lord who made all things. And you see again and again the nation's rage, the the, the people's plot in vain. Satan is constantly working to try to bring this whole mess down. But every single time, the end result, and in my head, then I start imagining what it's like. And I I just imagine God, you know, not in a cocky or arrogant way, but saying, yeah, that was my plan. I mean, in some way, that's what happens every time. I mean, I, I honestly, I really think that Satan thought when Christ was being crucified, I think he thought, I'm winning. He's dead. He sees Satan going, I think I did it. I killed him. He's dead. I stopped God. Only to find out later, that was his plan all along. This isn't very pastoral, but I've always thought it'd be really frustrating to be Satan. Can you imagine everything that you do to find out later that was God's plan all along anyway, and he's going to use it for a good purpose? This is precisely what this is teaching. God's hand. God's plan. He's good. He's sovereign. What I really love about this particular passage of Scripture, though, I didn't know this going into it, but as I was looking at this week, I thought, man, that's, that's good. What I really love about this particular passage is how these early Christians take this nugget of big truth and how they apply it. They don't just sit there and go, wow, that's 
That's big. Listen to what they say next. And now, Lord, because they acknowledge God's hand, God's plan. He worked, pictured in how it happened with Jesus. But, and, and now, Lord, look upon their threats now against them, against Peter and John, against those Christians. Look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. They take this big truth and they apply it to themselves. They could see that even in their own opposition, they were walking in the footsteps of their master. They were going, see, they realized that this truth about Jesus, that, that Jesus, when he suffered, and, and, and think about the suffering that he experienced. I mentioned just a moment. Think about some of those sufferings. I mean, those were really unjust suffering. I mean, when, when I always think of the time when Jesus was being mocked, there, there's, there, the Bible records that there was times where he, they had him blindfolded, they smack him, and they say, who hit you? I mean, that's cruel and unusual. But aside from getting to the cross later, aside from the scourging, I mean, just, just the, the, the mockery. And we know as well that Christ was, because we know this from, this is how crucifixions work. They were stripped bare. Think of the humiliation. I know in all of our movies when they have Christ hanging on the cross, he's got some kind of little loincloth on. That would not have been what it was like. Imagine the shame. The injustice of it. Especially because Jesus, unlike any actual human being, was really and truly and completely innocent and undeserving of death. I mean, we get upset when we suffer for good reasons, our own fault. Sometimes we're like, you know, we know it was our own fault, but we still kind of ticks us off. We get really upset when we suffer and we don't deserve it. Look at Christ. And these people, they look at it and they go, instead of going, man, we got a right to preach whatever we want in the temple. You can't stop us. They just go, hey, this is kind of like what happened to Jesus. The nations are plotting in vain. The threats are happening. And they looked at Jesus and they knew, just like him, God's hand and God's plan. In fact, we're going to see this through the next several chapters of Acts as this persecution increases. These early Christians don't go, well, this isn't right. They go, God's doing something. God's hand, God's plan. And what they pray for is not relief. Do you hear that in that prayer? Do you see prayer for relief from the threats? Not comfort but courage. They don't pray. Make them stop threatening us. They say in the middle, right in the middle of their threats, God, just give us boldness. Give us courage. And their prayers for healing are not just so that they can have a holiday at the beach. Their prayer for healing is single-minded purpose. That the name of Jesus might be spread. They're not, it's, it's not about heal me so my life can be better. It's, it's Lord, if you're going to bring healing, we, we want it so that your name, your name will be spread abroad. As the story draws to a close, it says, when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. Probably like an earthquake. Imagine them all praying together and then feeling 
you know, the building shake, the earth shake. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and God answers the prayer. And I think that's clearly what God is saying. I'm, I'm going to answer this one, guys. And then Luke summarizes, he says, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. As I thought about this, there's a couple things that came to my mind. The first one is this. I thought about what, what's the implication of this? In other words, what does this mean for us? Then I thought about, well, what's then the application? Because, see, that's the, that's the interesting thing. Because you can, you can hear a big nugget of truth like this, that God is supremely, sovereignly in control of all things. Even the raging of people against him, he's still in control of that. And you sit there and you go, well, what's the implication? But I think more importantly is what's the application? And when you think application, I just want you to think, not just what does that mean for us, but what does this mean for us tomorrow? What does it mean for us when we go to work tomorrow? When we're around family tomorrow, when we're around friends tomorrow, whatever it is you're doing tomorrow, what does this big truth mean for you? Let's take a look at this first one. Implication. Implications, God is sovereign. God is sovereign in the plan of salvation. It's clearly seen here. I mean, there's no place in Scripture that displays God's sovereignty, God's in-controlness more than at the crucifixion of Christ because you have people clearly... Pontius Pilate was sinning against God when he said, I'm wiping my hands of this situation. You can kill whoever you want. That's a horrible leader. That was injustice. And yet God was in control of the outcomes of all these things. Even though Pontius Pilate sinning against, defying God's righteous justice. In the end, what happens? It's all part of his plan. So much so that these early Christians, they don't have a problem saying, they, they throw in your hand in there as well. They don't have trouble giving God credit for all the good things that come out of it. God is in control. What his hand and his plan had predestined to take place. Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, right? The Romans, the people of Israel, your boss, They have a jerk boss. You don't have to raise your hand, but you can. <laughs> you ever have a boss that's unjust? Place favorites? Oh, man. Wow, I'm hitting a nerve, aren't I? If we think about the implications of this, God is sovereignly in control. Not just to, it's not like we can go. Thank you, God, he did this good thing. But these Christians said when, when, when their unjust authorities did bad things, they said, well, that's still God in control. And my goal is not to get out of this situation, but my goal is to say, how, God, are you going to use this? How can I endure through this with boldness for your name's sake? Uh, let me give you one little example. This is kind of flipping it around a little bit. But one of the challenges, I mentioned in school earlier, one of the challenges at school is that a lot of times kids can get away with a lot more than they ever used to. And one of the things that I, I found that I, as a Christian teacher in this public school, is to convey grace. Compassion. I, I tell kids all the time, I, no matter how many times they've done something, 
that was disrespectful or rude, I tell him, you know, you know what? If you come in tomorrow and you say, Mr. Ramos, would you stay late and help me? I'll say, yeah, absolutely. Because I want to convey, I'm, I'm looking at their injustice towards me. And I'm just going to be honest. They get away with talking to me way worse things than I could ever say to them. Some of you have met teenagers today, you know. I don't respond in turn. I always respond in grace because I, I, because what I'm, what I'm doing is I'm thinking about passages like this, that God has me in that situation. Maybe God has me feeling the injustice of these kids so that I can convey grace in return. God is sovereign. Your boss, your neighbor, that family member. God is sovereign. Let me put it this way. God is sovereign all, over all sorts of things. See, it doesn't stop there because when you start reading scripture, it doesn't stop with just these sorts of things. It just, it just expands. I always think of Joseph. Joseph, who was sold into slavery, ended up in Egypt, just complete. I mean, betrayed his brothers. At the very end of the story, God works all these amazing things out, and he ends up rescuing his brothers, and his brothers are then afraid. And they're going, oh, man, Joseph is going to have us put to death or something. We betrayed him big time when he was a kid. Now he's in control, and they were really, really afraid. And Joseph says, one of my favorite passages in Scripture, where Joseph looks at his brothers and he says, you may have purposed it, meant it for evil. That's important, the phrasing here. You may have meant it for evil. In other words, those brothers had evil intent, evil purposes in their heart when they sold him into slavery. That wasn't, they weren't trying to do what God wanted. They were going against what God wanted. And Joseph says, you may have purposed it for evil, but he says this, but God purposed it, meant it. And the word is very specific. It's not a word that just means he kind of fixed it later. It means he purposed it for good. And God is sovereign over all sorts of things. I think of as well as the, the man that was born blind. We talk about a man that was lame from birth. In John, there's a man that was born blind. John chapter 9, you guys know, if you guys have been here long enough, you know, that's one of my favorite, all-time favorite stories in the Bible. Where John, the, this, this man that was born blind, but it starts off, and this, this blind man is sitting there, and the disciples say, well, who sinned? Somebody had to sin, because look, this guy, man, miserable wretch of a guy. Right? Somebody had to have sinned. Was it him, his parents? Who did it? And Jesus says, he's blind for the glory of God. God is sovereign over all sorts of things. In fact, maybe I should just put it this way. Can we just cancel out the sorts of? Do you like that? God is sovereign over all things. That's not good. I got to get rid of it entirely. There we go. Make it bigger. God is sovereign over all things. I think in Romans where it says God is working all things together for good. To them that love him, to them who are called according to his purpose. God is working all things. It doesn't stop. I mean, it literally says that. God is working all things together for good. God is sovereign over all things. Which means the application then is this. You can trust him. Because see, this sovereign... Unlike the negative connotation that that Greek word has, despot, God isn't a despot. He's good. All the time. 
Can you imagine how bad it would be if God was in charge of everything, but he wasn't good all the time? What a scary universe to live in. This God is good. Always. Every good gift, every perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights. God is good all the time. You can trust him. Really think this through, though. This means that when, let's go back, because you guys obviously have problems with your boss. Um, you can go, your, your boss is, is being unjust again. That's just like my boss. He does it every time. You know, he's going to play his way. You, you can, with this big nugget of truth, you can go, this guy m- might have evil purposes in his heart. But as a Christian, I can see, it's like having this, it's like being let in on the secrets of the universe. You're let in on a a secret. God is actually still in control. Even when people are doing things, they're raging against God, like that Psalm says. Even they're raging against him. And you're sitting there going, man, it just seems like nothing. God, where are you at? Why aren't you jumping in here and intervening? And why aren't you doing something? You can sit back and go, as a Christian, with this big nugget of truth, you can go, He's still in control. I don't quite know what he's doing here. But I know who he is. Man, he's good. He must have a good purpose for this. You can go through life trusting in this good, sovereign God. You can trust because every single thing that happens, you, you will never be able to say, I bet God just went, oops. No. Because you've been let in on one of the secrets of this universe. Our God is the sovereign Lord who created all things and he's in control. You can trust in him in every circumstances. That means tomorrow, in your hardships, the things that you need, the things you're hoping for, Application as well, let's follow along with the application that they had. You should pray for courage. I mean, it's great to have this side of this trust, and that's clearly what these early Christians had, but to take it that next step and say simply, like they did, Lord, you don't have to relieve us from the situation. Give us courage, boldness, to be a good witness to how good you are. Do you realize the impact that you can have if underneath that jerk boss that you guys keep referring to, I don't know who this guy is, whoever he is. I hope it's not all the same boss for all of you. Um, Whoever this, can you imagine what kind of impact you might potentially have in the long run sometimes, or maybe just with a coworker or somebody else, if, if in the face of injustice, and I don't wanna trivialize this, you got that smile on your face that goes, man, the nations can rage, the people's plot in vain, but my God is still in control. It doesn't matter what this guy does, God's working it for good. You got to be careful with the little smile, though. You probably don't want to smile like that right in front of the boss when he's being a jerk. You know, he starts being a jerk and you're like, <laughs> you probably don't want to do that, though. Not saying provoke him, you know. But you as a Christian, you know. God's in control.
What can he do? What can this guy, this guy can't do anything. Not really. Everything he's doing, God's in control. He's going to work it out. You need to be patient. Pray for boldness that you can put on that face, that attitude of grace, compassion, because maybe even you need to take that step further and just say, Lord, my boss, he didn't have Jesus. If he died today, he would not go to heaven. And I think somebody just whispered, that's right. No, you don't know. That's wrong. No, he needs Jesus. And maybe your attitude in the face of those things might be the thing that just sparks that interest in his mind and goes, this guy's different. I'm a jerk to everybody. They usually get mad, but not this one. What do they have? Pray for courage. Pray for courage. Pray that you will be bold in your witness. Adopt this attitude. Let it encompass you. You are a witness, like these first disciples are. You are a witness of a resurrected Jesus. In human history, nobody else has died and of their own power come back. You've got the story. You know it's true. You above all people, knowing that truth and knowing the bigger truths beyond that, that this God is who he is, knowing the way he suffered on your behalf, all of those things, but then conquered in the end, you above all people are to be able to convey that witness, sometimes with just an attitude, but eventually with words. When they finally get to the place where they say, what do you have? You say, I've got Jesus. I say, I believe that Jesus was real and he really did die. And then when they came back a few days later, they looked at his tomb and he was gone. And then they saw him and he was walking around. And then his first followers began to perform miracles in his name because he wasn't dead. And I know that that crucifixion and that death and that burial was for the sake of our sins. And so I can with confidence now say, God, I know my future is taken care of. I, I don't have to go through life hoping I'm good enough to make it into heaven. I'm leaving that. I, I, I'm put all of that on you. I trust that you've got that taken care of. This is going to free you up with the ability to look around at the people around you and really love them because you're no longer worried about you. You have the freedom to be who God calls you to be. I'm going to pray, and I'm going to pray like these early Christians did for boldness. That whatever situation you're in, that you'll be able to see with this big nugget of truth, you'll be able to see past it and see the big reality that God is in control. And I'm going to pray that God will help you to be bold in your witness. Not brash, not rude, bold, just bold. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I just want to take a moment. Pray on behalf of all that are in this room, that Lord, that you would help us to be bold in our witness. Lord, give us boldness. Help us to see your sovereign hand and your sovereign plan over all things. And help us in the middle of these things, instead of just seeking relief and just praying for relief and praying for comfort, I pray instead, Lord, that you would give us courage and boldness to be a good witness of the great truth that you rose from the dead. Now salvation is a free gift to all who believe.
God, give us boldness to live that out every day. I pray this on my own behalf and on the behalf of all that are in this room, that you would bless us with this boldness as we go through this week. Lord, I do want to pray for those that are in the middle of tough situations. Lord, I know that there could be some in this room that are sitting here right now going, that sounds great, but man, this is hard. God, I pray that maybe this week you would help each and every one of us to see that we have a a Savior who understands, who has experienced injustice, has experienced suffering, has experienced pain. Lord, help us to, to see that our Savior understands. He gets it. So, Lord, when we're in the middle of these hard things and we know, Lord, we want to cry out, we want to be bold, but it's so hard. Lord, help us to think of you, our Savior, our, our hero. Help us to fix our eyes on you. And take all those cares, all those worries, all the, the challenges we have, and just cast them all upon you. In return, God, I ask that you would give us boldness. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.